Welcome to Mind Meets Body and Soul, a podcast that connects the dots between clinical mental health and spiritual holistic wellness. I'm Heather, a licensed clinical social worker and mental health guru. And I'm Devin, a Reiki master, spiritual teacher, and lover of all things woo-woo. We're here to discuss various wellness topics, highlighting the connection between the mind, body, and soul. We'll be offering nuggets of wisdom from each of our fields with the ultimate goal of bridging the gap between our two worlds. Whether you lean more into cognitive psychology or flow with the woo-woo waters, our intention is to help you prioritize yourself and unlock a fresh perspective to healing, growth, and expansion. We're so excited you're here. Let's jump in. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mind Meets Body and Soul. Heather here bringing in episode 29 with my co-host, Devin. How you doing? Hi, Heather. Doing well. Good to see you. Good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, I actually wanted to take a minute at the beginning of this episode to just kind of recognize, one, that this past week was World Mental Health Day. So I just want to, in recognition of that, kind of take a moment to check in with our listeners. I know the state of the world is very scary right now. Um, You know, some horrific things are happening. So I just kind of wanted to, as the therapist in the conversation, invite everyone to just check in with themselves, give yourself some grace, have some compassion for yourself during these like very scary, unpredictable, tragic times. Thank you for doing that. I think that's super important. And yeah, just really an invitation for all of us to as we can find our grounding, recenter ourselves, reach out for support when you need, and really just take care of one another. So thank you for starting us off with that. We are looking forward to getting into this episode specifically because it's a Q&A episode, which means that we have offered for our listeners to uh, tune in to follow a link that we sent out or that we shared for them to anonymously ask questions related to all things wellness. So I think that this is a perfectly timed episode for the times that we're in right now, for this week that we're in. And especially as we are recording today, it is Friday the 13th. We are in spooky season. So Heather had the great idea of making this a spooky season themed Q&A where we will be debunking all of your wellness myths, getting into all things mind, body, soul, well-being, whether that's more on Heather's side with the clinical psychology, mental health-based field, or on my side, more of the spiritual, the energetics parts of wellness. So looking forward to diving in to all of that. I have my vanilla pumpkin scented candle lit and my orange. This is as orange as my sweaters get, but my orange sweater. So I'm ready to dive in. (laughs) I love that. I am not so happily wearing my sweater today, but being the middle of October, embracing the season that we're in. And, um, you know, before we get into this Q&A as well, I just wanted to bring up a fun little actually debunking this myth. So today being the Friday of the 13th, there's actually a lot of misconception. I don't know if you know this, Heather, but a lot of misconception around what this day is. 
to explain a little bit, Friday the 13th has become this like feared day that is associated with bad luck, with tragedy, with death even, you know, the whole like black cat um, moving in front of you or like knocking, what is it? Like knocking like salt over, isn't that revered as like bad luck too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, it wasn't always that way. Friday the 13th wasn't always this spooky day of misfortune before patriarchal times. Friday the 13th was actually considered to be the day of the goddess. And by that, I mean it was a day to worship the divine feminine within all of us. So when I say goddess, when I say divine feminine, I don't necessarily mean woman in the gendered sense. I mean the feminine essence that we all carry within us. And the reason for that is a very spiritual concept. The reason for that is because when we think about the number 13, there is a spiritual tie to that number. There are 13 moon cycles in a year. And when we're talking about energies, the masculine energy is the sun. The feminine energy is the moon or is associated with the moon. 13 is actually also the average number of menstrual cycles that a woman has. And so feminine, women, moon, very closely related. And in the past, in many societies, women were revered as being like goddesses, being these powerful beings. If we think about what feminine energy represents, it's beauty. It's recognizing and appreciating the beauty in all things. It's also honoring all of the cycles, the phases of our lives, our emotions, and all of the transformation that happens when we allow it to, when we get out of our own way. So today, choose to see it however you'd like. However, I share this as an invitation for us to honor the divine feminine within each one of us and in the world around us, taking the time to just recognize and appreciate the beauty that is. I love that. I didn't know that history. I knew that there was some superstition around thirteen like the number 13 and Friday the 13th specifically. And I know some of the superstition actually comes from like the, like the Bible and Jesus had 13 disciples and the last supper was on Thursday and the stuff happened on Friday. And like, I knew all of that, but I didn't know beyond that, um, all of this. So I like this version better. (laughs) I like this version too. And it's like so perfectly timed with what we are doing in this episode, debunking some of the wellness myths. I know from what you've shared with me that we have had many shares or many submissions this time around, which we were really excited for. So ready to jump in when you are. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely had a lot of submissions. Um, So we'll start with the myths. Some people submitted a myth that they want us to debunk, and then we did get some questions too. So the first myth for us is the spiritual journey is often depicted as all light and luck or dark and scary. What's it really like? Mm. This reminds me of the episode that we recorded that we talked where we talked about um, the spiritual journey being more than just like angel numbers and synchronicities and signs. And I think that this is such a good point because I do see, you know, both sides of it on social media, oftentimes, at least today, like spirituality is kind of like a hot topic. And we see a lot about like manifestation and mindset changes and angel numbers and all of that where it's seen as very light 
and luck filled, right? We talked about lucky girl syndrome. Um, we've talked about like vision boarding and this and that. And then, yes, there is a part of spirituality that I think has pushed many away in the past where we think of spirituality sometimes as being like communicating with the dead or, you know, like working with dark energy. Um, and so I, my answer to that is like, it's, it's all things. It's like somewhere in the middle and it encompasses all things, just like our emotions. We've talked about that before too. Like the human experience is a spiritual journey and that incorporates or that encompasses all the things that we experience, right? Like the beautiful, fun glimmers of life and then also the really tough moments, the really challenging heartache, the grief, the loss, all of it at once. So that would be my response there. I'll just add to that, that I think, you know, the things that stood out to me in this person's submission was all light and luck or dark and scary. And it's very all or nothing, very black and white. And I feel like everything in life, we've, we had a whole episode on duality and in terms of how I see healing from the therapeutic place, you're going to have to work through some hard things to get to that place of light and love but it's it's everything it's hard work it can be scary it can feel really challenging and dark and that doesn't mean that it is that way permanently forever i think it's a combination i mean yin and yang right like mm -hmm. it's all the things yeah yeah we cannot have the light without the dark or the dark without right. the light that's a great point thanks yeah all right great okay so the next myths or the next submission says Western and Eastern medicine can be harmonized to heal from disease. I think that's what brings us together. Right. <laughs> Hence this podcast. <laughs> Hence this podcast. <laughs> so why don't you start us off with that, if you don't mind? Yeah. So for a lot of these, I, you know, my research-based mind. So I'm looking at um, a Word doc with a lot of things that I did some research and will include, I guess I should have said this at the beginning, we will include all of the resources and links for everything that we're citing in our show notes if anybody wants to learn a little bit more. But to answer um, to this submission, Western me medicine does focus more on seeing us as parts or seeing us as a symptom of a problem. Um, one of the articles that I found says that we are an organism seen as a collection of molecules. And that's as like clinical and Western, I feel like as it can get. Hmm. Whereas Eastern medicine aims to restore balance and sees us as a whole being and like more holistically focusing on treating the whole person rather than the symptoms of the problem. There was a really interesting article I found um, that I will link in the show notes that really just explains what is Eastern medicine, what is Western medicine, and kind of dives deep into that. But both, what I did find that I found interesting was that both are rooted in this universal principle that opposing forces generate the energy that flows through the network's of an organism. So basically what this is saying is that like life is energy, like you've spoken to Devin, and that whether you fall more on the Western or the Eastern side of medicine, 
both acknowledge that there is this energy that's flowing through our whole self, throwing, flowing through all parts of ourselves. So I thought that that was really interesting, especially for you being the energy healer in this conversation. Like, regardless of your medicine practice or your belief, they're both rooted in this like energy force is life. Hmm. I very much appreciate the research, the work that you did. It's an important connection that you just made there that yes, each side, Eastern, Western has their different approaches to wellness, to well-being, to medicine, et cetera. But it's really interesting. And I, I didn't realize that either, that both have that same or similar kind of like root universal core principle. And I think that speaks to, you know, the things that we talk about in this episode and what we really emphasize that it it is not one or the other. It's not your world or my world. Neither one of our worlds is more right, correct, effective than the other. It's finding the balance between the two. It's finding what works for you. It's remembering that we are all these whole beings made up of many different parts. And so what I really love about your response there kind of reminds me that we're all talking about the same thing, just really using different words or different approaches to get to the same outcome. And what's interesting too is that I was seeing a lot out there that spoke to Eastern medicine being used as a complement to Western medicine or as like an alternative medicine. But a lot of like the obvious fact is that Eastern medicine has been existence for far longer than Western medicine, even though it's not seen as scientific or like clinical or research-based, there is evidence that has been showing for years that it works. So it's it's interesting to see. And I was trying to find research that, because I mean, obviously I'm here seated in New Jersey trying to do this research. So I was curious if there was any bias. And I mean, I only spent an hour or so prepping for this episode, so I didn't get to dig totally deep. But I'm sure too, there's bias in the information that we have access to and, you know, all of the different levels of stuff that you have to dig through to find information these days. But I do feel like I'm, in my experience, seeing a lot more practitioners, doctors. I mean, we have this podcast. I just think that the blend and a holistic approach is definitely being more valued these days and recognized and um, leaned on. And, and I personally love that. Yeah, same. I would love nothing more than to see, you know, Western medicine involve some of the practices or the influence of Eastern medicine and, and vice mm -hmm. versa as well. I think about my mom and her cancer journey that she was on last year and how supported I felt she was by the doctors, by the nurses, by all of the medical staff that was there, you know, getting her through her chemo and, and all of that. At the same time, I also really appreciated it when I saw that they had like a calendar, like a wellness calendar where they also offered things like Reiki sessions. Like um, there would be volunteers coming around offering massage sessions and this and that. And it just, it was really cool to see that infusion of like, here we are, 
hospital setting, doctors, nurses, administering medication as the main form of healing. But then we also recognize that there are additional things, supplemental things that you can incorporate to help bring you back to this state of well-being. Yeah. All again comes back to duality and two things can exist at once and balancing like it doesn't have to be all one or the other. It can be a combination. And in my preference is best as a combination of multiple things. Yeah. And I just want to add one more thing before we move on to the next question. And let me know your thoughts here too. I find that Western medicine is very like research-based, right? Very science, very Mm -hmm. research based on the facts, based on studies. Whereas Eastern medicine really emphasizes the wisdom within. It's like following the wisdom of nature and of like our own inherent knowing. And so I find that having a healthy balance is like exactly what we're doing in these conversations is like we're bringing, yes, the science, the clinical research, and also honoring that like we do have this inherent knowing, this inherent wisdom. Like this isn't the first time that we as a human race like have been around, right? Like this is not all we know. Like there's a history beyond we can even comprehend of wisdom for how to heal or how to achieve like mind, body, soul, well-being. And so I think that balance or that harmony is in, you know, recognizing both of that. Yeah. I mean, I just think of myself as a therapist. I even in my intake paperwork have in there that my clients coming in, they're the expert on themselves and they're going to know what's going to work for them. They they have the say and the autonomy, but the, the wisdom to know what's not going to work for them. And then I think about how many times I've heard people going to the doctor and feeling unheard or feeling unsupported because the doctor has an opinion or an assessment of something, but this person's like, but I'm in pain and and you're not understanding and like, this is what's happening. So I do think it's really important as a trained therapist to meet our clients where they are, to meet our patients where they are. If they're coming in to report that something's wrong or, you know, they have pain here or this isn't, you know, going well, I think it's important to hear them out and understand that we do all have this intuition. We do all have this wisdom within us that, you know, we might not be able to understand or explain, but it's there and it's there for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for adding that. I think that's an important add. Of course. All right. So next is another myth. Um, It says mental health issues are hereditary and therefore not preventable. I have thoughts I would love for you to start us off with this one, but this one really reminds me of when people are experiencing some kind of dis-ease, discomfort, you know, anything, and they're like, well, it just runs in the family. You know, like my mom had high blood pressure. My grandma had high blood pressure. So of course I have high blood pressure. And when I hear that right away, my mind goes to the research and the teachings uh, we've talked about before. Dr. Joe Dispenza, he's a scientist, a teacher, like a leader in the field of epigenetics. And so that's where my mind went to. I did actually pull up a little bit of um, research on him. But before I do that, I would really love to hear your thoughts on this one. This one made me 
giggle be in the sense that like it's even how it's worded is so not direct and not extreme but it's it's so fact factual i guess or it's so rigid is the word i'm looking for like mental health issues are hereditary and therefore not preventable period <laughs> just like in the way that it's worded and i think the first thing I thought was like, it's not that cut and dry. Mental health is a very gray field in that, of course, there's a bunch of research and and studies and, and lots of things here, but it's not a yes or no answer. Yes, there are genetic factors when it comes to mental health, and that can lead us to be more susceptible to something, but there's so much that goes on and the epigenetics that you're going to speak to is a big part of this. Like, yes, you know, having someone, having a parent or someone in our family with a mental health condition does play a factor, but there's something called multifactorial inheritance, which means that there's multiple factors that are at play. So it's not just this is the core of the nature and nurture argument. Yes, our nature, our genetics play a role in this, but there's also a lot of environmental factors that can speak to or change our experience or our wellness or our mental health. So while yes, mental health issues can be hereditary, they also can, there are also steps that we can take to be proactive about maintaining our wellness. We also might not be able to control our genetics nor our environment, but there are tangible things that I want to get into that we can do they're called protective factors. So there's behaviors and things that we can engage in as protective factors to maintain our wellness. Hmm. Before though I get to the steps, I also have a piece on the epigenetics to speak to. So I was wondering if maybe you'd share next and then we can get into like the steps. Yeah. And I think I'm going to sound like so much more your world here, but what I really do appreciate about like Dr. Joe's work is that he does like bridge that gap between the spiritual energetics component of things and the clinical, the research, the science of, of all of it. And so what I've learned a lot through him and the book that I read was um, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. It's his book where he goes into, like, it's all for those that love like charts and research and all of that, which I do. I really do love all of the, the facts too. Like that's in there. And from what I understand about epigenetics, it's the study of how the environment influences our gene activity. So yes, like we have these genes that are passed down generation after generation. However, epigenetics is like, it gives us the, the knowledge or the awareness that we can activate our gene activity and we can actually change our genetic destiny. Meaning that simply by changing our thoughts, changing our feelings, our emotional reactions, and our behaviors, making healthier lifestyle choices, for example, we are actually sending ourselves new signals as we do. We are quite literally rewiring our brains to react or to look different. And in doing so, then we can work our way out of some of these mental health issues and also some of these like medical issues that have been passed down generation after generation. Epigenetics is interesting because 
in doing this research, I didn't even know this, but I learned that the word itself comes from the Greek prefix epi, which means on top of, above, or outside of. So epigenetics, what we're talking about here is how our genes express themselves. And there are a lot of environmental factors, drugs and alcohol, trauma, chronic stress. These are all things that can actually turn on or turn off how our genes express themselves. So what we're saying is, yes, you're born with this gene, that gene, whatever, but then there's actual things, which is so wild to think about, but there's things in our environment externally that then influence how those genes that we're born with express themselves. So it literally does turn off or turn on these genes. And that's really such a cool thing to know, in my opinion, that like just because you're born with a certain set of genes, mental health wise, doesn't mean that you are destined to experience some sort of mental health problem. It's very similar to if you think about like type 2 diabetes, or if you think about asthma, or um, like obesity, those are things that like we are genetically predisposed to some extent, but there's also things in our environment, the, the air quality, the food that we're consuming that also influence our wellness. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, great point there. Yeah. I didn't, actually didn't know the origin of the word either. So thank you for sharing that. And as you're speaking to that too, it just reminds me of like neuroplasticity, which is Again, wow, I'm sounding very much like your, you, your world here in this explanation. Don't worry, I will start speaking my own language in, <laughs> in a moment. But neuroplasticity is our brain's ability to change and adapt due to experience. So it's that environmental component that you're talking about. Like our, like our brain, while it is so strong and like can have its areas of like fixed state, like there's also so much ability to this is where like the mindset changes and the lifestyle changes and all of that like even the, the those external sort forces of like drugs this is i'm guessing in the western world like why drugs are seen as so effective because they are working with that like plasticity of our brain and helping to rewire helping to create this like chemical change right yeah. And all these different things, there's all these different things that we can do, sleep, exercise, social connection, and spending time with other people, talk therapy, all of these different things do change our or influence our neuroplasticity. You are speaking to my world. And there's research that shows that as we get older, we have less neuroplasticity, which just means that like our brain is a little bit less flexible, but it's still possible. It's still very doable to, to start practicing doing all of these different things can literally change the wiring in your brain and, and your brain structure. Mm. It was such a loaded question and like one that I think we could really talk about for a while, but I think your response there also is just like so empowering. You know, that's what we really want to get across is like if there is a mental health condition or medical condition that has run deep in your family, we are by no means saying that like you are stuck with that, that anybody is stuck with that for the rest of their lives. Like, yes, you may be predisposed to that. And you may have inherited some of that, but change is available to you. I highly recommend 
reading, you know, Dr. Joe's book, if that's your thing. And if I may just start speaking in my language for, you know, one last response here. One of the healing modalities that I have been exploring recently is something called family constellations. And it's a concept that was discovered like back when I think it was like World War II times. And it studied the effects of trauma and how trauma is passed down generation after generation. And again, whole nother conversation, don't need to get into this right now, but in the way that I understand best, if we are all made up of energy, which we are, and all of our emotional experiences, every all of our thoughts are all energies, then it makes sense that that energy gets passed on generation after generation. Yes, inherited through DNA, but also through environment. It's all the all of those things. But because all of this is energy, we have the ability in any given moment to transform or to change that energy from one state to another. So that's just my little piece that I wanted to add in there. Well, I think that speaks to like the protective factors that we can engage in or we can use are broken down into two parts. So there's protective factor one, which is doing those behavioral changes, like I said, sleep, exercise, movement, social connection. But the other part two of those protective factors is the emotional regulation piece, which is Mm -hmm. actually our calming our nervous system, which is very your world and what you do with a lot of your clients. And I think maybe there's some misconception there that talk therapy is just talking and that we're not doing these things. But a lot of what we're doing, this emotional regulation is meditation, it's journaling, it's crafting or creating, it's knitting, it's massage, being in nature, breath work, breathing exercises are all part of this emotional regulation that is also a protective factor, clinically studied, research-based that shows and influences our mental health, our physical health in positive ways. So this answer, I love this question because it's very much deeply rooted in both of our worlds. Agreed. Yeah. And couldn't have said it more perfectly than you just did. So thank you. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add there before we move on? No, I think we can move on because actually the next two submissions were questions and they're like just kind of continuing on very much related to this question. So um, let's just jump in here. The next question is, I, I liked this one too, does five minutes of mindfulness really help? I think it's interesting because this is like mindfulness is the goal, but like there is research that shows that like our mind wanders for reason too. And I think in 2023 with the technology that we have and the fast pacedness of this world, especially here, you know, in the tri-state area, we're up against a lot. So yes, it's important. I think the consistency is important in that like you don't just want to practice for five minutes one time and be done. We want to make this a practice that we're continuing to use. However, even if you only practice once a day for five minutes, it's a great reset. It's a great beginner entry level way to get into this practice. But I do think, and I know there's a lot of research that shows that mindfulness changes the 
neuroplasticity in our brain and helps us like think about your brain as having like an algorithm and think about like social media. It's just going to continue to do and show you the same things or think the same thoughts that you're used to thinking because it's like, all right, that seems to work. She keeps seeming to buy into these thoughts. Let's just keep throwing them at her. Practicing mindfulness is a way for us to choose, make a choice to walk a different path. I use the analogy of a hiking trail all the time. And if you've ever been hiking, you know that there's the path that you're taking. It's got the little like flags and stuff that tells you that you're on the right path. But you can also see in front of you, there's no leaves. It's been, it's been walked before. We take the path more often traveled. Mindfulness is a way for us to get off that path and do something different. You might sometimes when you're hiking see like, oh, look, it looks like someone kind of walked off there. There's like a little a side trail. We can choose to walk that. And the more that we choose to practice mindfulness, the more that we walk the path less traveled, that will become our new path. And we will be able to access a mindful place more easily. We just have to do the work to get there. So five minutes a day is a great way for us to start accessing stillness, for us to start accessing present-focused awareness, for us to be proactive against this tech, fast-paced world that we live in, for us to get out of that autopilot into the driver's seat and really like control our lives, have some of that stillness, have some of that peace. Beautifully said. Always love a good visual. And I think that that's really helpful too. And and does really feed off of that last question or that last myth that we just responded to. And, you know, something that you said there too, that like mindfulness is a practice, especially when, if, when we are new to it, it is a practice and it's like a muscle that we have to build. I also see mindfulness as being like a state of being, like we can live in a state of mindfulness, not necessarily where it has to be 24-7 because as you so helpfully mentioned, like research shows that yes, our mind wanders. Our minds are like time travelers. They can go in the past, they can go in the future, they can be in the present. And so the goal is not to be mindful 24-7 but to be, to practice mindfulness, like when you can, because it enhances your life, right? It's all about like showing up for yourself in this present moment or experiencing life in the present moment as it best serves you, knowing that also when you are mindful, when you're living mindfully, it helps and it enhances your connections, your relationships, your experiences with others as well. And and it more greatly impacts others. So yeah, for those that are starting with a mindfulness practice, five minutes, great. If you were going to, if I were going to, which I would never, but if I were going to run a marathon, I wouldn't just all of a sudden one day get up and go run a marathon, right? Like I would start running a mile, half a mile at a time and it's a start and you're just working your way up to the overarching goal of maybe running a marathon, living in a mindful state, whatever it is for you. I think what you're saying is really important. And it's it's actually making me think of one of the studies that I found in prepping for this question. I found a study that shows that 
five minutes of mindfulness can provide immediate relief for palliative care clients. And I think it's it's important because it helps. It's this study specifically showed that it improves their spiritual well being, it relieves their suffering, but it provides immediate relief to that. And the reason I'm thinking about that is because, yeah, you made a good point. Our mind is a time traveler. We spend so much of our time in the future, in the past, thinking about things. And this mindfulness practice just kind of like sucks us back into the moment that we're in. We're here. We're living in this moment on this day. And spending that time dwelling or worrying about the future or the past to some extent isn't helpful. We've talked about the function of anxiety, and I'm the first person to say that your anxiety is trying to protect you. But if you spend too much time in that future or past space, you're not doing yourself any good either. So mindfulness is so important for us to reset, for us to just be here, be here, be now, and just like live in this moment. Yeah. Mm. We are dropping so much juicy (laughs) wisdom and facts and research. I love it all. So yeah, yeah. we could could do mic drops if it wouldn't like, you know. (laughs) cause too much chaos for our listeners ears. <laughs> no, that was that was a great response and again, I really appreciate the time that you took to pull up all of this research and to, you know, put these resources in for our audience. So, thank you for that. So, short answer, yes. 5 minutes of mindfulness is very effective on all levels, on all fronts, and we highly recommend. Mhm. So in addition, the next question is a perfect transition from this one. So the next question says, what are the basics if I'm starting a wellness routine? Great question. So five minutes of mindfulness. (laughs) Five minutes of mindfulness, yes. I'll also say to this one, very similar, which, which we spoke to earlier, be and spend time with yourself. I think like my wellness routine is going to look different, Devin, from your wellness routine. And while there's basic things that we talked about, those emotional regulation, journaling, crafting, breath work, nature, or the behavioral sleep exercise, social connection, the levels to that and what each of those things look like is going to vary from person to person. So I think the basics in my starter kit for starting a wellness routine would be, of course, nutrition, sleep, movement. That's going to all look different person to person. But also like if you're a creative person, lean in there. If you're a an active person, lean in there. If, you know, whatever it is that calls to you or that you brings you joy, that's going to be part of your wellness routine also. You know, my mind automatically went to the chakras and the chakra system. And as you are offering your suggestions, I'm like, we are speaking this to the same exact thing without getting into a whole topic on the chakras and the chakra system. The As we go throughout the chakra system, which are like the energy centers of our body, they hold our needs for total mind, body, soul, well-being. And down at the root chakra is where I was going to just offer a starting point. It's exactly what you're talking about. At our root, meaning like the foundation 
of our being are our basic needs, sleep, nutrition, and just making sure like on a day-to-day that we feel safe. And so in a world of like infinite resources and so much advice, if you are starting a wellness routine, start at the root, start at the basic foundations and start improving sleep, start creating some kind of morning routine so that you're starting off the day from a place of groundedness or end the day where you are winding down in whatever way. Before we can get to really anything else, it's just tending to those basic needs is my short and sweet answer. Yeah. I love that. That gave me inspiration. I'd like to do in the future, maybe an episode on in my world, it's called Maslow's hierarchy. I'm curious how that connects to the chakra system. So I'd like to unpack this question a lot more in like a whole future episode. Absolutely. And I remember in my AP psychology class in your year of high school, I made like a 3D model of this Maslow's like hierarchy of needs. So yeah, there, there definitely are some tie-ins there. But for today's response, the basics start at the foundation. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said, I think the foundation for a self-care routine or a wellness routine is exactly where we want to start with that strong foundation. So I love that. Thank you for sharing. All right. We've only got two more questions, so bear with us. We're wrapping up shortly. The next question is, do you have to be sober to be spiritual? A good question. I think as with anything, we're going to offer, or at least I'm going to offer here, like take what resonates, leave what doesn't. The answer is never going to be definitive, like yes or no. The other thing though, Devin, that I'm curious about is I know that there's like some spiritual journeys and you know other ways that we can elevate our spiritual journey through substances other than like not just alcohol so i'm wondering your thoughts on any connections there mm, that's a great question thank you for posing that because immediately like my mind went to sober not drinking but yeah right. The, right the word sober is more of like an umbrella term it can encompass so many different things that was actually kind of part of my like suggestion with those who are contemplating like a more sober journey, whatever that means for them. And I think it really comes down to intention and it's less about like, do you have to be sober to be spiritual? I think it's more about intention. As we grow and as we evolve, our intentions may shift too with why we are using a substance. And so the short answer of, do I have to be sober to be spiritual? No. And also, recognize or like maybe get curious about like what your intention is around using a substance or or drinking a drink like maybe when it comes to drinking it's like truly enjoying the taste of wine and that's fine you know there's nothing there's nothing necessarily wrong with that as long as it's not creating a negative impact on your overall well-being Exactly what you said. I I think it's all about unpacking your intention here. And while no, I don't think you have to be sober to be on a spiritual journey or to have this wellness that we're looking for, I do think the intention behind that, like if you're using any sort of substance to loosen you up or to help you with social anxiety, like I kind of think your answer is a little bit in there in that like there's a lot of 
growth and and this substance is probably some sort of coping mechanism for you to help you manage or deal with the stress of your day or the anxiety that comes around social settings. So I do think it's an interesting question and I would love to unpack that more with this person to be able to see what's your intention here and is there a way that you can lean less on these substances. I think leaning more into sobriety is definitely a really vulnerable thing for a lot of people and requires growth and strength and courage. And I think if that's the type of spiritual journey you're looking for, it might be something to consider the balance that works mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. As with all of our questions and responses, it is never going to be one size fits all, but I think that intention piece is, is huge and a yeah. good place to start. Mm-hmm. All right. All we got right. one last but not least question ahead of us. Yes. Last but not least. Okay. It's a little bit of a long prompt. Um, it says, I'd like to hear more about the fact that traditional talk therapy can only take you so far and that trauma is stored in the energetic body and how non-traditional slash spiritual practices, Reiki, chakra clearings, somatic healing can help aid in the healing process. Yeah, another really great question. We've also touched on this, you know, in previous episodes a little bit. I mean, it's kind of why we came together, you and I, in the first place. My immediate thought is not discrediting talk therapy at all. And I remember, you know, you saying like you as the therapist in this conversation can vouch for the power of therapy, of course. And me being the more spiritual, you know, non-traditional energy healer, I am never going to discredit talk therapy, right? Like I think we all could benefit from having a therapist to support us, to guide us through whatever it is that we're going through. Do you want to speak to this first? I read this question this morning and I was like, oh man, like I was sad. That was my ego. And um, I recognize that talk therapy has its limitations. Of course, I would be silly and it wouldn't be helpful for me to say otherwise. I mirror your question or your response right back at you. I am the talk therapist. I think talk is energy. So it is a way that we can move our feelings and process through our feelings and sort them out. And of course, it comes with limitations, which is where your world steps in. And I think a lot, I know a lot of therapists are doing more than just talk in therapy sessions. We are, I know, several movement therapists and somatic therapists who are doing that body work. I just spoke earlier to emotional regulation and calming your nervous system. So while talk therapy traditionally is more of a top-down approach where we're using logic and we're using rational thought to process through things. I think the field is is leaning and, and making steps and strides more towards balance and more towards a holistic approach as well. I know a nurse practitioner psychiatrist who also practices with herbal medicine, and she's not just prescribing antipsychotics and antidepressants and things, but she's also prescribing herbal remedies and holistic approaches too. So my ego was like, oh, come on, talk therapy is great. This hurts <laughs> my feelings. But 
the professional in me knows that, of course, talk therapy is going to come with limitations. And that's why I use creative arts therapy and journaling and meditation and mindfulness and all types of holistic approaches too. I think that's such a powerful response there, Heather. And my immediate reaction was like, protect Heather at all costs. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I see that. I like, that's what I so appreciate about these conversations that we're having. I mean, we are emphasizing the importance of both, right? Like from the beginning of this podcast, we did not say, go to the spiritual, the somatic practices only and totally ditch the therapy and also not just go to the therapy and ditch the somatic practices. What we're seeing, especially in Western medicine, is like we have leaned so far into the, you know, more traditional talk therapy side as it's happened, you know, as we've moved more into medicine and stuff. So now what we may start to see is like the pendulum swing to that opposite end where it's like Reiki, chakra, somatic healing, all of that. And then ideally we find ourselves somewhere in the middle. And so I think that's maybe why we are seeing so much of an emphasis on the somatic work. But again, goal is to bring ourselves somewhere in the middle where we are utilizing all tools, where we are recognizing that it's not one size fits all. I want to speak on the personal level first. As I mentioned in our guest episode with Michelle, there were parts to my trauma and to my story that I never would have been able to get to with traditional talk therapy, simply because, as you've mentioned before, like we can only talk about the things that we are conscious of. And when we experience trauma that, yes, this person's absolutely right, that gets stored in the energetic body, sometimes it happens at an age where we don't even remember it or right in in any given moment where we don't remember it. And so we can't talk about that because we're not consciously aware of it or aware of its impact. And thus, somatic, spiritual, non-traditional Eastern medicine and practices are really helpful because we access those parts within our energy body that have been so deeply stored and hidden. Fortunately, not everybody necessarily has that to the point where they don't have to go deep within the archives of their energy body. And thus, talk therapy is such a helpful tool for just bringing that mindfulness, bringing that emotional nervous system regulation on the day-to-day into play. I think too, one of my favorite things is when my clients are doing both, because I think like you said, we can only process, we can only talk about the things that like we have conscious awareness of, or we have words to speak. So there's, like I said, there's all the other types of creative arts and movement and other ways that we can express ourselves. I ask clients all the time, if you don't if you don't have a word, give me a weight or a size or a color or a like something, like just start describing it. But again, there's limitations there. So I think it's really powerful to have the energetic component and the somatic process of being able to, to pull these things up. And then when we are conscious of them, I think talk therapy can help us to then speak to and process that that new information. It's not all about talking and processing. It's absolutely essential for a lot of people to have that somatic 
um, non-logical, non-rational, energetic component to this because there's things that are stored inside of us that we can't make sense of or we can't even remember. Our brain is such a protective, wild thing that it literally blocks things out of our conscious memory trying to protect us from it, but then that makes it so much worse. And that's a whole nother episode again. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all of the things. I know that you, I understand and have seen the power in energy and chakra work and Reiki and how that can aid my work. And I think that's really such a beautiful thing. So I thank you for that. And I thank this person for submitting this question because even though initially it was like a dagger to the heart, I think it's important. And I'm glad that I got to speak on it too as the talk therapist in the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just, you know, I want to take a moment to, to recognize you and like, I'm sure as a collective, as we move into more of this exploring this like very opposite, seemingly polar opposite end of what you do, I could understand how it kind of stings to know that you're doing something that is helpful and effective and, you know, transformative for so many and to kind of feel like this other world comes in and is now discrediting. And I don't think, at least from my point of view or my intention, I don't think that's the intention at all. It's more of a, hey, remember, this has been around for so long. And especially in a society where we are experiencing like mental health crises and, you know, illnesses at an all time high, let's maybe also remember that for centuries, we have turned to principles or concepts of Eastern medicine and people have healed through some really serious things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's make friends with both. Let's mm -hmm. utilize both. Just as you said, there truly is so much power in like the clients that see both you and your type and me and my type and blend the two together. Yeah. I am glad we ended with this question because I think it's important. And I just think regardless, I always want everyone to have support and be healing and doing the work. So I am thrilled regardless of what path you take. There are many. And I just hope, I think we're all trying to get to the same place of wellness and peace and healing. So take a, pick a path, take it. And if that's not working for you, try a different path. There's lots and lots of options and every single one of them is beautiful. Yes. Heather, you have been filled with beautiful advice, wording, and, and all the things that you've said. So thank you. This was our most popular Q&A session so far. So many great questions. And yeah, we truly are just all walking our own individual paths towards the same collective goal and intention of well-being. So thank you, Heather. And thank you, everybody who submitted their questions and their myths this week. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, to all of our listeners who contributed. That makes these episodes what they are. So I love that. And Devin, thank you for all of your beautiful, wonderful responses. And this week, I think it's your turn to take a look up at your vision board now that you're back home here in cold New Jersey. So <laughs> tell us what it is that's calling out to you today. 
Okay. So the first thing that calls my attention actually relates a lot to this, what we were talking about with like epigenetics and neuroplasticity and it's change your attitude, change your future. Hmm. I think a prevalent theme throughout all of this is that, you know, we have the choice, we are empowered to make great change in our mindsets, in the state of mindfulness or the practices that we adopt or take on. And thus, again, are working towards this same goal of well-being. We have a choice. We have a say in a lot of the things that we talked about today and a lot more areas of our lives than we realize. So you can make that change. And I hope that that message came across throughout this episode. Me too. And I look forward to meeting you again here next week. It's a date. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Bye. We are so glad that you took the time to share this space with us. We'll be releasing new episodes of Mind Meets Body and Soul every Tuesday. So be sure to give us a follow and share this podcast with those you love. To connect with us and join our communities, head to the show notes where you'll find our contact information and individual websites. Until next week, stay grounded, keep growing, and trust that everything you seek is unfolding for you.